Hey, Alyssa. Hey, Sam. Are you ready? I'm, I'm, I'm ready. Dr. Lori Brado, are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay, great. <laughs> Stuck at the office or traffic jam. Time to take it easy with Alyssa and Sam. Is that show you know? A pro. Okay, you guys, so very exciting. Today we are joined by Dr. Lori Brado. She is a professor in the UBC Department of Obstet- Obstetrics and Gynecology and a registered psychologist. Stop me if any of this is incorrect, but I think it's straight from your website, so I'm hoping. <laughs> she is the executive director of the Women's Health Research Institute at BC Women's Hospital, holds a Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health, and is the director of the UBC Sexual Health Laboratory, where research primarily focuses on advancing the science of psychological and mindfulness-based in- intentions for women's sexual health. I'm intimidated already. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be, please. So um, you guys actually reached out to us, but we are so grateful that you're here because you guys are starting this. Well, you've you've had this campaign. It's called Debunking Desire. And the campaign really is focused on that. It's on it's focused on debunking the many, many, many sex related myths that exist in our society, especially around sexuality and especially around women's sexual desire. So stereotypes such as if you don't feel hot and horny and in the mood for sex all the time, you're broken, there's something wrong with you. Myths such as everyone else is having great sex except for me, therefore I'm broken. Um, And then a lot of myths uh, surrounding like what are the causes of my low desire. Um, And so really the intention of the campaign is to take some of the science, uh, because I am a scientist and I spend a lot of my time uh, doing research on women's sexual health. Um, And so using the campaign to share the key findings from the science and get them into the hands of women so that they can benefit from it. How did you get into this? Because this is like your whole, your whole life. How did you get into that specifically? You know, it's really funny because um, I grew up in a really uh, conservative Italian Catholic family um, and fell into sex research um, in rodents. Actually, I started out as a volunteer job. Um, volunteering in a lab that was looking at the effects of medications and pharmaceuticals on sexual behavior in rats. Um, So I I did that for about six years as a student and as a master's student. And then um, the year that Viagra was approved for men, and you all know Viagra is a you know blockbuster pill, the little blue pill that um, restores erections in men with erectile problems. Um, That year that uh, Viagra was approved for men, there was a really big study that was published Um, And what the study found was that 40% of women across ages have ongoing and distressing sexual problems. So um, I looked at the science then of, you know, what do we have for treatment? So many more women than men have sexual problems. We've got this amazing drug that can be taken discreetly and cheaply, et cetera, for men. What do we have for women? Right. And there was nothing. So pretty much that day I shifted my research. I was still a student at the time, a PhD student, um, and then really focused on women's sexual health from that day forward. Um, And then because I was also training as a clinical psychologist, I think it was the stories that women told me when they came into my office, the stories of secrecy and shame and the tears and the, oh my gosh, I've never told anyone that sex hurts or that I have no desire, yet I love my partner so much. So it was it was sort of the the life experiences um, uh, combined with just this dismal state of the science that steered me in the direction of wanting to devote my life to studying uh, treatments that were safe and cost effective for women. Um, I have a question for you right out the gate here. I'm curious how much like desire has to do with attraction like so if you have like low desire does that automatically mean that you wouldn't be attracted to that person because i think there's a lot of stigma around that in relationships with people yeah um you know uh when i when i'm in the clinical role and seeing women and women and their partners together that's often the concern is oh my gosh does this mean i don't love my partner so that's definitely a concern that people have and just as you can have sex without love you can have love without sex. So love and desire don't have to go together. Um, and then the other part of it is, you know, what about attraction? Does this mean that we just don't have chemistry? 
Um, and a lot of people really kind of hold to that idea that you either have immediate chemistry with someone and it's not something that can be forced or created um, or you don't. There's actually no science that really supports that, that this notion of, you know, you have to have chemistry and a, an immediate attraction with someone in order to have sexual desire for them. Um, so just to kind of dive into that a little bit deeper, you know, there's different kinds of desire. There, it, there definitely is this um, kind of spontaneous desire that happens out of the blue, a lot more common at the start of a relationship when everything is new. And a lot of that is driven by the reward systems in the brain, like the dopamine center, right? So when you really crave something, that's dopamine at play. And that's usually desire in the early stages of a relationship when you're infatuated with someone, you can't wait to have sex with them. Like the honeymoon phase. Yeah, and it fades, it, it does fade. And for some people it fades within a few months um, and for others it fades within a few years. Um, and so that is normal. There is nothing problematic or wrong with you to have that kind of spontaneous desire fade over time, but it gets replaced with a different kind of desire. And this is the really important message that I think women need to hear is you can actually cultivate desire, but it means paying attention to what are the things that turn me on? What are the things that have to be in my environment or in my head? or in my interaction with my partner or partners in order to bring that desire out. So I sometimes use the analogy of going to the gym. Um, and if you've ever been like in a gym lull, um, you, how do you get to the gym? Well, you put the runners out, you put it in your calendar, you remind yourself this is a good thing to do. You don't wanna go, but then you get there, you have a great workout, the endorphins run, you say, I'm so glad I went to the gym. And desire in a longer term relationship often looks like that. So what it means is that it can be pretty normal for women to start out an encounter without desire, but then it kicks in at some point during the interaction. If she gets aroused, if she feels pleasure, if she feels good, if she feels her needs are being met, then desire can kick in. So it's a different kind of desire we call responsive desire. Um, and it's important that we recognize that women can have both and, or they can have one or they can have the other and it's, and it's normal. Right. So basically, I need to tell my partners what I like, and then it'll feel good. Wow. <laughs> it's so funny because it's it's so much easier said than done. You know what I mean? Like, I've definitely been in relationships, and we've talked about this before, where, you know, being a little bit younger and stuff like that, it feels uncomfortable, for for me anyway, because I grew up kind of having this notion of, like, I'm a female, I don't poop, and I, <laughs> I don't ever have hairy legs, and, you know, I don't grow armpit hair. Okay, and, and I will say Alyssa actually doesn't ever have hairy legs because she <laughs> does shave her legs once, if not twice a day. <laughs> because I'm still stuck there, Sam. <laughs> I'm stuck in the bubble. Um, and so talking about stuff like that and, and feeling comfortable being in a vulnerable position already um, and having those conversations can be really difficult. But I totally agree. Once I started having those conversations, and being like oh maybe let's do this or you know even the the preemptive because I have found <clears throat> excuse me that my desire is so much linked to like I'm not like a spiritual person I won't say but like to a spiritual connection like we're like vibing with each other and like you're looking at me and like I'm looking at you and I'm like it's about to go down <laughs> Um, do you have advice, I guess, I guess you can't give like specific advice, but from um, your research and stuff on how to actually like approach those difficult conversations with people who like might not be super comfortable yet. Yeah, you know, I think your, your opening comment, which was a bit facetious, but is so on point and it is, oh my gosh, if I tell a partner what I like, right. does that mean I'll actually get what I like and it'll feel good? Yes, 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 a hundred times. And um, the reality is, is that we don't do that. And um, I have the luxury of actually being able to dive a bit deeper into figuring out why, like what are the barriers about? And women will often say, oh my gosh, if I tell partner what I like, they're gonna assume I'm doing it wrong, right? Or they're right. not stimulating me in the right way. Or am I gonna communicate that I'm actually not attracted to them? Or am I gonna communicate that actually I don't have desire for them? Um, and you know, I, um, I have a lot of gay male friends um, where, talking about sex ahead of time, coming to an agreement about what they're going to do and what it's going to look like is just part of the sexual encounter. And so I often say, you know, we could probably 
take a page out of our gay men friends sex lives because they do negotiate they do talk about consent they do talk about what they want to do and have no qualms about um, asking for what they want for us it's just it's a lot harder to do that so um, what I would say is um, there's so much benefit to be gained by telling a partner yeah, and there's a way that you can say it, right? So I'll often say, use use your eye language. I really like when you do this to me. Or let me show you, honey, where to touch. And you gently move their hand there as opposed to you're doing it wrong. Stop right. doing that. So definitely the words we use um, make, make a big difference. Um, but because I often talk to partners as well, they will say how relieved they are to be told how to touch and how to stimulate and understanding what she really likes. So everyone wins when we communicate about sex. Yeah. I, th I think it's so funny too, because like when, when I'm being intimate, I like, I don't want for my partner to be in pain. That's my goal is for them to feel good. And it's so interesting that I've spent so much of my life being so uncomfortable wondering how I can achieve that goal when in like every other aspect of my life, I'm like more than happy to be like, okay, how can I do this better? But, you know, and, and maybe better is the wrong word, but more effectively for the partner that I'm currently with sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm curious on your thoughts on this. I watched a TED Talk this morning. It was called uh, A Sex-Starved Marriage. And <laughs> um, this lady in there, I believe she actually was a doctor as well. Um, and she, uh, her, her comment was... Um, what should men be doing? You should be listening to your wife. You should be, you know, there for her emotionally. What should women be doing? Adopting the Nike philosophy, just do it. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, wow. It's it's not just one thing, right? So there are, there are definitely truths in that. And the, the Nike philosophy of just do it, it, um, it, certainly it aligns with what I was saying earlier about, you know, go into sex for the right reasons, but don't just go into it because you think you have to. Right. And definitely don't go into it to avoid a fight, to avoid resentment um, for what we call avoidance related. And actually scientists, there's a whole body of science that has looked at why do people have sex and believe it or not, there's 237 reasons, discrete reasons that people provide for having oh, sex. Wow. So things like, I want to feel pleasure. I want to have an orgasm. I want to communicate. I love you. It's their birthday. It's to get to sleep, to revenge sex, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if, if you're having sex um, to avoid something bad happening, so uh, what I often hear is, you know, if I don't have sex once a week with my partner, they are very difficult to live with. They're mean to the kids. They throw things around in the house. I can't communicate. And so she continues to have sex with them. That is a perfect recipe for resentment and, and painful sex in the long term. Um, so all of that is to say, you've got to have reasons why you're having sex. And the reasons can be different every time. So maybe this time it is about that great orgasm. And maybe it's the next time it's because this is a great way to fall asleep. Or some women after orgasm will find that there's like an analgesic after effect. It takes their chronic pain away. Um, so it's more complex than nu and nuanced than just do it. Um, the other thing that I feel an obligation to say is consent. And even in a long-term relationship, it behooves us to revisit consent because a lot of women um, feel like they're not having consensual sex but in their heads they'll say but I'm married so therefore it's not sexual assault if we're married right I'm I'm staying because I want to um, but that that is a really really important topic to address the topic of consent and do I actually really want to be having this well and I think as well like making sure that people don't feel like um, there's any reason why someone would be entitled to your body. Um, and I think that a lot of people do feel like that, like you said, like in relationships and stuff like that, well, I should be doing this. Um, so that makes it okay, even though I don't want to, because like, you know, this is my partner. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the entitlement thing, uh, no one signed up, no, no one signed a contract that said, you know, when we enter into this relationship, this gives you the full rights to my body. Right. Never. I don't know any woman who has signed that contract, whether it's been explicit or implicit. Um, and so it, it comes back to the notion of, yeah, we, this is a consensual thing. And that means revisiting, do I want to be doing this? We also need to recognize that maybe times in your life where you don't want to be having sex. You've just had surgery. You've just had a baby. 
Um, there's other things that are, you have yeast infection, right? Um, and, and that is normal to go through periods of time where you're not having sex. Um, I, I probably should also mention for the listeners that there's lots of, well, not that I have to, you know this already, but it's a good reminder that intercourse is just one kind of sex. And if we think about a buffet table or a tapas, um, that can be really useful for the periods of time when intercourse or penetration is, is not an option for you right? Because of a yeast infection or because of whatever, whatever the reason is. Um, and in fact, oftentimes those other kinds of sex are a lot more pleasurable. <laughs> I really like that. Mm. Um, so with debunking desire, I kind of want to get back to like the um, actual desire part because I'm, I'm so interested as a 26 year old um, woman, I have gone through periods where I felt like in my mind, like zero desire. Mm. And that was really concerning for me because um you hear like growing up that women only get like friskier you know as they age and I was like am I broken (laughs) like did I am I reverting like my my fertile and excited years are gone Mm -hmm. um and then I did eventually come out of it and I'm back and better than ever so sorry grandma um and (laughs) but (laughs) you got here somehow Alyssa (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) thank you so much um um but but I I wish that somebody would have kind of like why you were already debunking it but I wish that I would have seen that and I think that a lot of our our viewers and listeners even probably don't understand that there are so many things that go into desire not just I'm broken yeah so I kind of want to know I did read up a little bit but I feel like we have so much time here so I'm so excited um I kind of want to know like what what are those things that contribute to desire I mean yeah yeah. So, um, you know, again, the part of the campaign is to debunk the myths. And one of the myths, it sounds like you faced was only old women lose their desire, right? Right. It, it only happens after menopause. Um, and that's a that's a complete myth. And when you look at the science, and, and uh, this actually has been studied in many countries of the world, in large samples of women, um, low desire is actually not affected by age. In other words, a young 26-year-old woman is as likely to experience a period of time where she loses desire as a 66-year-old woman. Now, definitely there's changes with menopause that we can talk about later um, that contribute more. So first of all, um, we need to kind of dispel that idea that, um, that you know, it only happens to older women. You, you can be a young person. In fact, some of our research that we've done has looked at really high rates of sexual problems in young people. So adolescents, people who are, you know, just starting out in their sex lives um, and not having desire, difficulty with orgasm, feeling pain, etc. So it circles directly to your question, Alyssa, which is like, what are the main causes? Mm-hmm. Um, and I usually get asked by the women I see, you know, is this hormonal? Um, are my hormones out of whack? Do I need to go have my testosterone checked? Um, that also has been studied up and down. And actually testosterone contributes very, very little to women's sexual desire. It contributes a lot more to men's sexual desire, uh, but for women, almost nothing. And all of the studies that have been done have found no relationship. When you when you correlate uh, blood levels of testosterone with her reports of desire, there's no relationship. There's been about 20 mm-hmm. studies that have done and find no relationship. So then what are the causes? Um, And lots of different studies have looked at this, including several of our own. Um, And the reasons can be really complex and there can be a lot of different reasons happening at the same time, but by and large, they tend to be more psychosocial reasons. So things like ongoing anxiety, ongoing stress, even day to day, like the the chronic to-do list, never feeling like you can get off that hamster wheel. Um, Depression can be a major contributor and that makes sense because depression by definition is apathy and lack of interest. You lose interest for the things in life that usually give you pleasure. Sex is one of them. So we often look first at um, mood-related anxiety and stress-related contributors. Um, And then there's a whole list of other things that I think fly under the radar. Things like fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. Not sleeping. Um, Sex takes energy. It takes physical and absolutely emotional energy. And um, if one is is chronically sleep-deprived, that's going to completely contribute. Um, And then there's a whole, whole list of belief related factors. So beliefs that get in the way, things like worrying about the outcome, 
Will I have an orgasm? Will I please my partner? What if I leak a little bit? What if I make a smell? Oh my gosh, I didn't shave my legs. Are they going to notice? It's too light to have sex and they're going to see that body part that I don't like. Um, so we call those, psychologists call these cognitive distortions. They're basically beliefs that, that impact how you feel. Um, and there's been a lot of research that shows those potent negative beliefs can actually directly affect our body's physiology and our ability to get aroused. Oh, wow. It's, it's amazing. And so, you know, think, changing your thought patterns and becoming aware of, of what you're thinking and replacing the inaccurate stereotypes with accurate beliefs is super, super powerful. Um, and then, of course, there's more medical and physiological reasons, things like chronic pain. Definitely, if sex hurts, you know, you're going to lose interest in doing it. It's an, it's an adaptive thing. We avoid the things that give us pain, right? You touch your hand on the stove once, you're never going to touch it again. Right. Um, so if sex hurts in any way, you're going to lose desire for it. A lot of medications can get in the way, antidepressants, absolutely, but even a lot of more common uh, medications like nasal decongestants um, and neuroleptics <laughs> and etc can also interfere with arousal which can then affect your desire for sex okay listen I've been on nasal decongestants <laughs> for three years okay it's like the one thing we didn't take out <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting looking at both of your both of you both your eyes went bing it's like why didn't anyone why didn't the pharmacist tell me that well, exactly. oh my god I've been saying this for years it right? drives me crazy that they don't talk about even with like birth control I think I might have talked about that in the doctor one but yeah. um like it was crazy to me that I had been getting birth control from doctors for years and years and years and none of them had told me any of the side effects and then one day I was like googling what the side effects of birth control can be and I was like oh like literally like a whole host of my my mm -hmm. problems mm -hmm. um it, it, it is crazy it's it's so ugh, yeah. yeah 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 uh and there, uh, you know, a lot of doctors are either they don't get the schooling, the education around how do you talk about sexual health, etc., um, or they bring their own personal baggage and they think it's inappropriate, um, or they're embarrassed, or the reasons are simply not good enough. But it is the reality that most doctors are not talking about. That's actually part of what I do in my role in gynecology. Um, is I actually train our our um, uh, medical students how to ask about sex, and then I for, I force them to practice on me. And then because in a safe environment, I can actually correct what they're saying and right. teach them how to do it in, in more of a non-biased way. I never even thought about the fact that doctors um, get embarrassed. Oh, like I was like, no, they don't. They're perfect. <laughs> like, like somehow they just, because they're doctors, they don't have emotions. Oh, oh, I've never gosh. thought about that before. Yeah. Oh, wild. Um, do you find that like sex is overall under-researched? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, um, it it totally is. Oh gosh, I could go on and on about this. So um, I did part of my training, my schooling at the University of Washington in Seattle, um, and uh, I was in a great institution. It was you know really well resourced, fabulous people, um, and because of all of the taboos, and at the time it was a very right wing government, um, and I actually had colleagues that were getting their sex research studies defunded. Um, so I, I turned down a number of job offers and moved back here. I'm originally from here um, where funding has been easier than in the States, but certainly not easy. And so when I started doing this work, um, I, I had to piggyback the sex research on something more, quote, legitimate. So actually a lot of my early research was in sex and cancer. So the focus was on cancer and cancer survivorship and sexual dysfunction was just one little add-on. But for me, that was actually the main interest. Um, and that was the case for probably about 10 years of my, of my research. So if you look at my early work, almost all of it is in sex and cancer for that reason. Um, wow. Thankfully, it, it was really good work and, and made an important dent. Um, so to answer your question, Sam, yeah, it's underfunded, it's understudied. Um, yet at the same time, the World Health Organization, like the global body that defines health and health standards, has said that sexual health is a core aspect of quality of life. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a human right. Um, and so is pleasure. Those who want pleasure have every right and deserve to, to feel pleasure. So we're seeing the tide changing a little bit. Um, but still, it's nowhere near where it needs to, the funding rates need to be. And, um, you know, when we look at how common sexual concerns are, I mentioned the early study that found 40% of women have sexual problems. By comparison, 
um, things like diabetes or asthma, which are absolutely life interfering, but are a fraction of the prevalence that sexual dysfunction is yet predominate all of the funding that gets, you right. know, because they're not, they're far less stigmatized than sexual problems are. Yeah. All right. Do you think that like social media is beneficial in terms of, you know, um, there's a lot of conversation around women that are like sexualizing themselves online. Um, and do you find that that's actually beneficial or do you think that kind of hinders the conversation around this stigma? Wow, that's a, it's a good question. You know, the feminist in me, which is my core, um, says that we should be able to and we deserve and we're entitled to be sexual in any way that we want that as long as it's consensual and we're not harming anyone, including ourselves. So that part of me says, you know, we should be able to be pro-sexual and celebrate our sexuality on social media. Um, then there's the pragmatic side of me and, um, and that is the side that knows our history and knows the history of how women's sexuality has been treated. Um, women's, women's sexuality, uh, for the longest time was either diagnosed as frigidity. So frigid, that term frigid was actually a diagnosis. So women who were not, was for, were not interested in sex. Um, I hope your listeners can see your reactions because yes, this, this captures it. So frigidity was a diagnosis, um, or the opposite end was nymphomania and oh my god you can't win no you can't win you're either (laughs) frigid or or a nympho and that is our so so there's a legacy of uh, pathologizing women's sexual desire into one of these two equally bad camps um and so that's the pragmatic side of me that i worry about so on the one hand, I love women celebrating their sex. Like, I wish we could go on a social media and say, I had the best orgasm yesterday. Here's how it felt. Um, and I know within five seconds, she's going to be labeled right. and stigmatized. Well, um, and also, like, it will probably be content that's taken down. We had, um, I, I have made um, videos about, like, menstrual cups, mm-hmm. always demonetized on YouTube. Really? Um, which, like, that's... I menstruation mean, for God's sakes. Well, and yeah. 50% of us yeah. are like, and it, it, but it's weird that that's seen as like, you know, a, a controversial topic to the point where, oh, advertisers won't want to put con- that their ads to that right. kind of content. Um, and then any, um, I feel like the ones that we do, like talking about sex, um, hmm. a lot of the times end up getting demonetized as well. Yeah, wow. the or addiction. Oh, addiction, yeah, as well. Um, the, oh, we went there episode we actually tried to kind of like skirt the demonetization by labeling it oh we went there Mm. instead of something having to do with with Mm. stis or anything like that because we knew that if we labeled it that it would get demonetized but somehow they still caught they found you (laughs) yeah Yeah. well what was happening when i was in the states for a while is there was a very very active right-wing group um so uh, when scientists get a research grant we they actually make our abstracts which is like a summary of what we plan to do they make those public and this small very active very influential right-wing group was scouring the internet they would basically do keyword searches sex research um uh, funding and they would just read through abstract after abstract and then they contacted the funding agency and threatened that if they didn't take the money away from those sex researchers that they were going to go very public and let taxpayers know that their money was going towards understanding prostitution. <sighs> um, so it is, but you don't want to take a risk, right? right. So it is, um, it's, it's pretty scary and you do have to be pretty careful. So I know I'm not answering your question and, <laughs> and, uh, and obviously it's a, it's a complex situation, a complex yeah. answer. Yeah. It's so crazy to me that like that that's happening. Obviously it is, but it's just like, where is the benefit from us taking money away from, from sexual health research? Like, what are you benefiting from that? Continuing the stigma, I'm assuming. And I also think it's so funny because, you know, when we talk about the kind of um, political conversations in America surrounding abortion and stuff like that, and people, um, you know, trying to get that, uh, so that, that that's like illegal, yeah. like nationwide. And it's interesting because um, a lot of the times the same commentary around gun control is that like, well, it doesn't matter if you make it illegal, people are still going to do it. The same goes for abortions. So people aren't going to just stop doing it. They're just going to do it in a way that is significantly more dangerous. More dangerous. Yeah. Totally, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, things are a lot better in Canada. First of all, we have a you know feminist for all of his problems, for all of his issues. We do have feminist prime minister 
who is intent on equity. And actually, since um, Justin Trudeau has been in his position, we, we, we definitely have seen benefits to reproductive health funding in our hospitals and in our programs. There's still a long way to go. Um, but when you compare that to some of the stances of some of our premiers across Canada, for example, the case in Ontario, I mean, Ontario used to be we used to look up to Ontario for having an amazing sex education program. I know you you covered sex education one of your podcasts a while back. Ontario used to have the best sex education program. They used to teach um, five-year-olds in kindergarten the body parts, like vulva oh, is different wow. from vagina, is different from scrotum, is different from testes. Um, and then when Doug Ford came on last year, a year and a half ago, um, he reverted back to like a 1950s model of sex education where you're no longer allowed to teach kids the specific body parts you just have to you have to label everything genitals everything um, but what does how does that serve anyone yeah, it doesn't it's it does a... it's it's fear-mongering it's a, it's um it's based on i think a set of beliefs that if you if you give people education um they're going to do bad things with it it's like the hpv vaccine if we vaccinate girls in grade nine suddenly they're all going to be out having sex. If we put con condom machines in bathrooms, suddenly everyone's going to be having sex. Um, none of the science supports that. Actually, what's the, what the science shows is that condom machines and HPV vaccine actually decrease unintended sexual activities and unintended pregnancies because you're empowering people with education. Right. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's completely not based in science. Uh, it's very, very frustrating because the science exists, right? We just need to share it. Um, but when you see this happening on, on a political level, it just makes you just, it just baffles your mind. It's very frustrating. a quick break to thank one of our sponsors for today's episode which is framebridge so we were really excited about framebridge because we've been finding it really tough to frame prints that are not like regular size so when we went to framebridge and we had all of these like weird irregular prints um we could customize those frames to fit our prints and you can actually also upload your own photo and they'll uh, print and frame it for you so i uploaded a picture of sam and i <laughs> And I ordered four copies so that we can... That's can... like the only thing that you've ever printed in your life, ever, like... <laughs> Pictures of us. Yeah. <laughs> so we can have one in every room of the office. <laughs> Everywhere we look, it's just a picture of us staring back. Yeah, exactly. So here's how the process works. You just go to framebridge.com, upload your photo, uh, or they'll send you a package so that you can safely mail in your physical pieces. Like if you have original like artworks and stuff like that that you want framed, um, they'll send you that. Uh, shipping material. Yeah, I've got some Monet's kicking around. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been meaning to frame. Don't discredit your artistic value, okay? <laughs> okay? Your originals are important. I don't know that I'd go quite as far as to be like comparing myself to Monet, but <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the confidence boost. I really needed that in 2020. <laughs> Preview your item online in uh, dozens of frame styles. So you can pick different frame styles and, and see what it's going to look like. You choose your favorite, or you can actually get a free recommendation from their uh, designers as well, which would be good for for me because I literally need your advice every single time I purchase anything decor wise. <laughs> I don't have decor style. <laughs> Somebody tweeted me a picture the other day and they were like, what mirror should I put above my shared bathroom? They understand me. Yeah. <laughs> the experts at Framebridge will then custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door or ready to hang. And instead of like the hundreds that you would pay, like there's other stores that we've been to when we were looking for frames and we were like, are you joking? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's so expensive. We're in the wrong business, clearly. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. So if you guys want to try out Framebridge, get some photos framed, maybe of Sam and I, just kidding. Um, <laughs> you can go to... Alyssa has a bunch of files she can send you. <laughs> yeah, from, from many a year. Yeah. <laughs> you can go to framebridge.com and use code approachable and get 15% off your first order. That is framebridge.com with the code approachable for 15% off your first order. Thank you so much, Framebridge. Another huge thank you to today's other sponsor, which is Skillshare. Skillshare, my boo thing. <laughs> I'm still loving on Skillshare. People are even like like uh, in my lives being like, Alyssa loves Skillshare. <laughs> like I do. <laughs> so if you guys don't know, because I've, I've literally been preaching their praises for like, this is six months now. Yeah. <laughs> Skillshare is an online learning community. So you sign up and they have thousands of classes that you can take from like 
honestly like anything i took american sign language i took uh beginner spanish you've taken photography courses there's like um motivation classes and stuff like i know i saw that one the other day actually and i was like mm, it feels like a little bit of a feels like a little bit of a you know personal attack that's fine <laughs> but that's the thing is you can like take it and then maybe it'll get better <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know that continued learning is really important to me and it's crazy because I started actually taking college courses again and I was like shocked at how much textbooks were I I know like I know. my textbook is half the price of my entire course which is crazy. It is crazy. And and my I don't believe that the college courses that I'm taking are actually transferable. Like, I don't get a grade for it, mm. but it's with the college. So it's like, I mean, if I can be so bold, like basically the same thing as Skillshare. <laughs> it's not like I can like put that on my resume or anything like that. So something I'm actually really excited to take. I haven't taken it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it because I'm trying to also get better with photography because I'm trying to like, you know, nurture my passions. So there's one on Skillshare right now called iPhone phone editing, how to edit photos like a pro using Lightroom mobile. And I'm really excited about that because I feel like, and you can attest to this, when I edit photos, I'm just like 100% <laughs> on every edit. And so I think that this one is like specifically important to me. It's targeting, it's targeting you. <laughs> yeah. They're like, Alyssa, we saw your photos yeah. we made this course for you <laughs> um i came across one the other day that was um how to make a podcast oh. uh, it's called how to make a podcast plan record and launch with success and i thought that that one would be really interesting because i've had people reaching out to me and i think you have as well mm. um to make a video about how to make a podcast <laughs> and i keep being like listen like we kind of threw this thing together <laughs> don't go by our business yeah, model exactly I'm like I don't know that I can I don't know that I feel ready to give that information out but yeah. um I thought that that was a really cool course and they're always kind of like updating with new things like that which is awesome yeah that is sick so if you guys want to also nurture your creativity <laughs> like myself you can go to skillshare.com approachable and get two free months of a premium membership. You can take as many classes as you want for two months. So really just like cram as much in as possible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's the thing is like, I thought I was going to be like, oh, well, I've taken enough classes. I'm still, I'm still on Skillshare, man. Well, they're always <laughs> updating it, so. And you know what? They've labeled themselves as a proud sponsor of Approachable. So they're I mean, proud to be here. <laughs> and we're proud to have them. <laughs> so again, if you guys want to try it out, you can go to Skillshare.com Approachable and get two free months of a premium membership. Thank you so much, Skillshare. And it's just so frustrating that like, sometimes people get annoyed with me because like when I have conversations with them, I'm like, okay, but where's your like evidence? And someone recently said to me, I feel like if I don't have a peer reviewed journal article, you won't believe me. And I'm like, I won't. <laughs> I'm like, if it's exactly out there, right, yeah. why would you not? And of course, like, I, I'm, I'm human. I make mistakes. I'm not educated in the way that even, you know, the people in front of me are. Um, but I try my best. And it's like, if, if the information is out there, so why are you deciding that you're right because you're right? Yeah. yeah. When, when there's actual scientific evidence that you're wrong. <laughs> well, and if there's something that you are passionate about to have, like, you know, an argument on it, wouldn't you want to know yeah what's what like what's right with that yeah um I, I want to take it back a little bit because you'd mentioned it a couple times about genital pain and this was something that um I didn't think about for a really long time um is that you can have painful intercourse without having an actual infection mm -hmm. can we talk about that a little yeah. bit yeah what do you want to know? <laughs> so, okay. So I don't want to speak out of turn here because this is like a story that Sam told, but I brought up the topic. So in, thank you. Um, consent. Awesome. <laughs> Love it. Um, so Sam had mentioned a story in the, oh, we went there episode where she was having um, painful uh, intercourse with her partner and she went to the clinic and they did all of these tests. And um, what was it that the doctor ended up asking you? Sorry. Um, well, everything was coming back normal. So I had been into the same, I had been into a couple doctors, but I had been into this, this one doctor like over and over and over again. Um, and everything was coming back normal and there was no issues. And, and then at one point she was like, do you like feel comfortable with your partner? Mm. And I, it was so like astounding to me to think that like, I've never been asked that in this conversation, but like, that is obviously, why would that not be a massive part of this um and then we kind of just went from there like she was like do you trust them do you you know like and and 
at the very end she was like I don't want to like sum it up to just this and we can keep doing tests and I'm mm-hmm. not going to like let you like we can figure it out but she was like stress does really weird things to the body yeah um it can cause that pain and she was like I would be interested to know you know if you were to be with another sexual partner I'd be interested to know if this was still an issue and it never was again yeah so you're really lucky it sounds like you had a healthcare provider who got the good sexual health training that we provide um that's not the majority of family docs or gynecologists unfortunately yeah so pain I mean there's there's the obvious reasons for pain that a doctor would see on an exam something like a yeast infection Um, there's also a whole slew of um, uh, skin conditions. So just like you can get psoriasis or eczema on your arm or your face, you can get it on the vulva as well. So lichen sclerosis and lichen planus um, are two skin conditions that can be really, really painful and are treatable, uh, but they need to be properly diagnosed. Um, Most of the other pain conditions, which is the majority of them, you don't see anything on an exam. So even um, a chronic pain condition like provoked vestibulodynia, PVD, basically sex, uh, when sex hurts um, and affects about 20% of women, you don't see anything. There's no redness. There's nothing. There's no discharge. You see nothing. And so women often get told, you know, it's all in your head. In fact, we had a social media campaign <sighs> two years ago called hashtag it's not in your head. <laughs> Um, and it was focused on provoked vestibulodynia and the fact that women with awful, awful, I mean, they, could, they couldn't even wear tight jeans because the seam on the jeans was provoking the pain for them. Oh, wow. um, and for those women, you know, stress might not have been the cause of the pain, but it was definitely a perpetuating factor. It was a reason why they kept, um, ha- um, why the pain was continuing. And it's because stress changes your brain, right? So we know chronic stress absolutely changes your brain and can change the pain centers in your brain. And there's been a ton of uh, like neuroimaging studies where you bring people into an fMRI machine, you look at the brain, you have them even imagine pain and you can see the pain centers lighting up and they will say, I feel pain. And you don't see that on a physical exam. Um, So I think the heartbreaking part of that is how many women were dismissed by their doctors um, our research on this pain condition shows that, that it took an average of seven different physicians over the course of five years to get an accurate diagnosis. Meanwhile, as time goes on, month by month, year by year, her pain is getting worse and the interference in her sex life and in her relationship is getting worse. Um, so provoke vestibulodynia, super common, about 20% of women. Yeah, that's high. Really high and we're not talking about it. Well, that's what all. I was going to say. Like I, we were chatting just a little bit before we started uh, filming this episode and um, I was saying, I feel like I'm very open about sex with my friends and partners and stuff like that. And if I can be so bold, the fact that I had never heard of this yeah. and it was, it's so common. Yeah. I was like, how does anybody else know about this? Mm-hmm. That's so crazy. Yeah. So, um, you know, kudos to you for actually asking the question on the podcast (laughs) because all of your listeners and, you know, just based on the prevalence, there's a good number of your listeners who likely have this. And my my hope is that they're hearing this and they go back to their doctors who have dismissed them and they, you know, print out the crib sheet on provoked vestibulodynia and say, is there any chance it could be this? Right. Um, And then Sam, just your your point that your doctor suggested to you, like maybe it's partner specific and sometimes pain is partner specific. So our our bodies have evolved to protect us and protect us um, from things that are painful. And we've all heard of Kegel exercises. And I think what we, what a lot of people don't know is that sometimes the, the pelvic floor muscles tighten up involuntarily and they do that in a way to protect us. Um, and when that happens, it basically closes off the opening to the vagina because the pelvic floor is right behind the vagina. Um, so if there are any issues of feeling unsafe in a relationship, maybe even feeling un- un- like unsafe with that person or not liking that person or being belittled by that person, the body says no. Like the the body will close off. And so my prediction is what was happening in your situation is the pelvic floor muscles, which, you know, had the guts to say, "Uh -uh, he's the wrong person. (laughs) They they closed off, sex hurt, and then you're in a safer, better, healthier relationship. And suddenly pelvic floor muscles are like, yeah, I'm happy again. It's just so wild to think that like that's a thing that we're also not taught. Because I feel going back to talking about sex education, I feel like in school I'll never let this die (laughs) I feel like in school the only thing we are allowed to talk about because it's deemed appropriate in Canada anyway um 
is sex in terms of how you can practice it safely but not in terms of anything for pleasure which I I guess I guess I do understand because then that sort of is like yeah in the realm of like inappropriateness for like teacher student you know what I mean so I understand that but but I I just wish that there was like something else where where we could talk about this because well there is now social media but um going back to what you were saying too keeping it a secret doesn't mean we're not going to do it you know it and whether I was um educated about sex or not educated about sex I was going to start having sex <laughs> it's just mm-hmm, the, it's yeah. just the, the way and and like you said it's it's our human right as well um and so it would kind of be nice to know and not feel like hey I'm broken because you know something's happening to me and something similar did happen to me where um I was feeling pain as well and I was like oh well I mean my partner's cheating on me or something like that I'm like because I've been faithful and here I am and um and thankfully Sam had opened up to me about that and I was like could this be what it is Mm -hmm. and I mean it turns out it was and I'm just like this is so wild that this is a thing that we're not talking about and like just as with the um STI conversation how many people opened up to me about their experience with STIs I just I can't help but wonder how many people are going to open up to me about this as well and be like oh my goodness yeah right yeah and I wonder like how many people just do think that it's their it's their fault it's something that they're doing wrong um as opposed to like you know your body's reaction to what's happening right yeah, we don't we don't listen to our bodies and trust our, our bodies enough. And we we spend a lot of time in our heads. I actually have a book called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. And um, the whole the, the entire book, um, the reason I wrote it is because I know no one reads my medical articles. Uh, <laughs> 150 ex- peer reviewed. Except, <laughs> except my students, of course, but no one else reads them. So the book was an opportunity to take the science and share it with um, with the masses and our research on mindfulness shows that you know if we can get out of our heads and into our body we start to feel pleasure we start to feel arousal even at its earliest signs Um, for the women that I work with with say a cancer diagnosis or a surgery or multiple sclerosis or some other reason why arousal is low um, our research shows that you know if you actually pay attention to it which means you need to be there you need to be noticing it you can amplify the arousal just by paying attention to it so we spend way too much time in our heads when it comes to sex and not enough time in our body. Um, and Alyssa, this speaks directly to your point about like, why aren't we talking about pleasure in sex mm-hmm. education? So there are guidelines, Canadian guidelines that um, came out last year from CCAN and any of your listeners can go to the website. It's free. CCAN is um, the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada. And they did a really, really thorough stakeholder engagement interview process where they put together the best sex education um, that could possibly exist in Canada. And they put it out to Canadians um, and and they're waiting for school districts to take it up and implement it. So we've got the program. It's evidence-based. Oh, wow. There's a whole module on pleasure and why paying attention to pleasure and being educated on pleasure can actually protect against future um, non-consensual sexual encounters as right. well, in addition to just being a good thing to do. But the barriers are at the school district levels right. in wanting to implement this. Right. How do you feel like, um, like in terms of, because I was going to ask like what you thought needed to change with um, sex education within schools, but for people that are outside of school, how do you feel like, you know, getting across that information, like what is going to be the easiest way? Yeah, I mean, social media is great because it's accessible, it's free, um, the, and that's part of why we developed Debunking Desire. And, and we have um, a website, debunkingdesire.com, that Melissa and Bryn put together with a toolkit, and the toolkit has easily digestible and downloadable and shareable tidbits of information, and then a, a lot of resources um, to point to point women to. Um, the problem is wading through all of the you know garbage that exists out there Um, and unfortunately there's not a good way to do that Um, so you can come to us and we can point you in the right direction (laughs) but there there is good information you're about to get a lot of emails (laughs) yeah well i'm happy you know what because then what happens is if one woman is educated and empowered and i always whenever i give a talk um, i say please share one thing you learned with another woman because then she'll share it with someone else and you have the nice you know pyramid effect um, so yeah, the challenge is how to get how to get the accurate information into the hands of them. The information is out there, 
Um, but navigating that to, in order to access it is really important. Um, the other thing is, yeah, family doctors and primary care providers play an important role. And so if you find that you're being dismissed, either ask for a referral elsewhere. I recognize how hard it is. Yeah. Like 50% of British Columbians don't have a family doctor. Um, but if you do just keep ask, like keep asking, keep persisting. Don't, uh, don't be dis, don't settle with being dismissed. Right. And I think that that's a, a really good point is that um, because even uh, I, my brain always goes so fast and then I start like three different conversations <laughs> in my own head um, with all of my like chronic illnesses or chronic pain. I'm so quick to advocate for myself in those ways. But when it comes to anything sexual, I'm kind of just like, oh, OK, it's fine. Like, yeah. you know, and it's again, it's kind of even that stigma within myself of like, OK, these are valid because I have a, a bone fracture or, you know, I have chronic rhinitis like that. It's something tangible. But when it comes to something that is intimate, I'm like, well, no, that doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? And, I, and, and I would challenge you and, and say, listen to what you just said. You know, yeah. you're, you're 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 basically um, depriving yourself of a fundamental part. So I want you to remember the World Health Organization has told us, has said sexual health is a fundamental right. It's a core aspect of our health and our quality of life in the same way as bone health and mental health and hormone health and everything else health is. It, it, is, part, it is part of your health package. Um, and the consequences when sex isn't going well, if it hurts or if you have low desire, um, the consequences can be pretty significant. It takes toll on your relationship. It creates anxiety and stress, can trigger a depression, can lead to fears. It can lead a woman who's not in a relationship to avoid meeting someone. Yeah. Um, which um, is Oh, is right here. Oh my God. I'm right. like, I don't want to have anything to do with men. Yeah. Like I've never been, yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. yeah, that was something that was really scary for me too, leaving a relationship was I was like, what if what if I go into another relationship and I don't want to have sex and they don't want me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's so interesting hearing it put so like poetically together by yourself <laughs> instead of me just being like all over the place. But it is so true. There are so many consequences to not taking that part of you seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was having problems with low libido and so I was going in um, and I was I had decided that I was going to go on medication for depression I was really against it for like a super long time but when I was researching it I was seeing that that like often causes like um, low sexual desire and so that was the first time I'd ever brought it up to a doctor well I guess other than the um, the pain thing but um, in terms of like low desire that was the first time I had brought mm. it up and uh, when I told my doctor about it I was like I want to go on antidepressants but mm. I don't want anything that's gonna like affect my libido and like right. I like looked right. down and like covered my eyes because I didn't want to have to like look at him mm. <laughs> like while I was saying it because I was so embarrassed like it was such a weird thing to just like say to yeah. someone that's not part of like my intimate relationship how did he respond uh he was like great let's put you on Wellbutrin Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah, I mean, he should have asked you a few more questions before, but that was, you know, he, he listened to you and yeah. he actually made a good recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so antidepressants, um, uh, it's actually um, not necessarily desire that affects, it's arousal and orgasm mm. that antidepressants, just when you look at how they act in the brain. But of course, if arousal goes down, and you're someone who enjoys orgasm and, and those feelings of pleasure, of course it's gonna affect your desire for sex. So it's they're, they're definitely right. all connected. So yeah, Wellbutrin is a, is a good suggestion. It's gone well. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so, like, we are gonna get like so many, it's so interesting comments. Um, but it's so interesting that you said that you had to look down because I had, um, I had decided that I wanted to like take my health really to the next level and, and this isn't even the next level. See, why am I even making excuses? Anyway, um, I wanted to get like a full panel for STIs and, and um, things like, like hepatitis and stuff like that because I hadn't done it in a really long time. Um, I think it had been like four or five years and I went into my doctor like armed with this story as to why I wanted to do that. Like I, I was, she was gonna be like, I'm not giving you those tests. <laughs> I was just like, you know, like I'm just like, you know, when I traveled a lot and all these things and she she was so sweet. She literally put down her pad and her paper and she said, there's nothing wrong with asking for this. Mm. <laughs> and she was like, I have people who come in and ask me to do this once a year. 
every six months it's up to you Mm. let's do it and I was like what a woman oh yeah truly what a woman yeah um but it is so true it's it's again if some if you came in and somebody was like I think I've broken a bone it's like okay right which would, would you like hobble out without saying anything about yeah. it right yeah, exactly. and that's it's the reason fine, though right it's okay don't don't mind this yeah I, th- I think it'll set itself it's okay yeah. yeah well I mean I'm really glad to hear that you found the courage to do it's it's ironic that we have to say courage exactly right to yeah. ask about your health but it does take courage again because there's so many stigmas and taboos um, but a lot of women just suffer in silence and yeah. they don't bother because there's, or they have the intention to talk to their doctor about it and then they get to the visit and they're looking at the doctor and they can tell the doctor's rushed. And um, so they decide against it. Yeah. And that's really common and not acceptable. Yeah. Um, I'm curious what, because you've like dedicated your career to this, I'm curious what your goals are surrounding, um, you know, research and funding for sexual health and like spreading that conversation. Yeah. I mean, I imagine a world where no woman has sexual problems. That's my vision. Um, Really lofty, Um, (laughs) but probably unrealistic. Again, because we live in a high stress society where there's a lot on the go and there's there's those reasons for sexual problems are just surrounding us. Um, So I mentioned a lot of my research is on mindfulness-based interventions, which we know work. We've shown that over and over in different studies with different populations of women, following women over years. It works and the the benefits are lasting. Um, Now I'm really focused on access. So how do we get these effective psychological skills-based interventions out to the women who live in rural remote parts of the province and the country? How do we get them to marginalized groups of women, the women who have been dismissed by doctors because of their color or because of their sexual orientation um, or because they're in a non-conventional relationship? They have, you know, they have multiple partners or what have you, or they're single. Um, so we've really over the last year, a few couple of years, been focused on um, developing web-enabled versions of our face-to-face interactions. We've been doing a bunch of feasibility testing. Like, does it work if we take our face-to-face skills um, that we deliver that work and move it online? So that's been a huge interest of mine um, within this research space. And then um, the knowledge translation, which is this whole field of, you know, the science is there but there's this gap in getting the science, first of all, into the hands of women who can benefit, um, into policy, like can we actually change policy where we mandate training in sexual health by our family doctors. Like it's required training in your residency that you have to have training in sexual health. And you don't graduate with your family doc certificate until you've passed. And that, that means more than just getting education, you have to actually do a mock interview where you ask someone in a sensitive way um, so that's a huge goal of mine. Is that it's, not a thing right now? It's not. No, it's not a requirement. No. Yeah. I know. That, that is yeah. shocking to yeah. me. Yeah, I know. Oh my goodness. Um, and in BC, we're doing pretty well, but that's not the case for most of Canada where there's no right. sexual health training. So that's kind of a, a lofty goal as well. Um, and then, yeah, closing this gap between bringing the science out into the public and and, and making it a normal part of our conversation. So I can stop having women who come into my office and say oh my god I've had this problem for 15 years and I've never been able to tell anyone I'm so I've been so embarrassed um that just it has to stop again because as we were just saying we wouldn't do that with other parts of our health so I almost would like to see kind of the status of sexual health elevated in our society and it being recognized and I actually think it's going to take a politician um who has a sexual problem to you know, have this be part of their platform. And this happened um, 15 years ago in the States when Bob Dole was running and he was on Viagra ads and suddenly everyone was talking about Viagra and it was okay to talk about the little blue pill. Um, okay, great, that's great for you, but what about women's sexual health, which are far more common? Right. So yeah, we need to get a lot more comfortable talking about it um, in public spaces and get some of our leaders advocating for the need for us to talk about this too. Um, what would you say like is the difference between because you've talked a lot about how this is like a kind of a female dominated issue um, statistically what's kind of the difference when it comes to like low desire between men and women great question you know there there is a lot of attention on Viagra and Viagra um, restores erections um, 
but low desire in men is more common than erectile difficulties in men. So it's still about half as common in men as it is in women, the low desire. Um, but it is the most common of the sexual problems that men experience, low desire or lack of desire, um, and affects young, young men as often as it affects older men. Um, it is a little bit hormonally, more hormonally based. So there you can measure testosterone and it is associated with low desire. But there's a ton of body image um, issues in young men. Um, you know, kind of this I ideal masculine image. And if I don't have that, it, it shows up in the bedroom. And there's often performance concerns that lead to loss of erection or loss of desire. So I actually see a lot of young men in my practice as well. Um, is there anything, I know you guys are like on a time crunch. Is there anything else you wanted to like encompass in this? I forgot to mention too, Melissa and Bryn are both here. Thank you so much for being here as well. Um, but is, is there anything you wanted to talk more about the debunking desire? Cause I, I'm so thankful that you guys are giving this a platform and that you have the like multitude of accolades <laughs> to, to be doing this. Um, so I want to make sure that we give it the respect it deserves. Oh, the quiz. I took the Thanks, quiz. Melissa. I took the quiz. I took the quiz too. What was your score? I, I got all of them right. Yay! Yes. <laughs> the quiz. Yeah. Definitely like giving myself a pat on the back. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So embedded in uh, in the campaign on the website, uh, debunkingdesire.com, we've embedded a quiz and it's, you know, a series of true false questions about sexual desire. And it's just a good little snapshot of like, what are some of the myths I'm, I might be having? So if you don't get 100% of it on it, it's okay. I understand we live in a world where there's a lot of misinformation but it's an opportunity to learn more so we've um for any answer that is scored incorrectly we provide the the correct answer including some of the science um, and the citations that go along with that so um yeah I, I think you'll you'll what we've found is that this has become such a powerful vehicle for um educating people bringing the science to the masses and making women feel normal and validated that i think we're going to be doing much more of it wouldn't you say Bryn? more social media, Bryn's nodding. Um, <laughs> yeah, we just need fun, more funding to do it. But like I said, we did get funded from our provincial health funding body to, to do this work. So uh, yeah, thank you to you two for using your platform to get this message out. I oh, think absolutely. I know at least a third of your listeners will be very grateful. Yeah. Oh, for, oh we have so many female listeners. I oh, think yeah. It's like I think 99%. it's like 90, yeah, 99% yeah. female. I'm um, pretty sure, yeah. I did just want to ask you really quickly. So in terms of like low desire, like what, what can women do about that? Yeah. Uh, it's not a medication. I will say that at the outset. Um, not because I'm anti-medication. I'm not anti-medication. I think there's a lot of things where medications really play a really critical role. Um, but none of them have been found to be effective and safe when it comes to low desire in women. Um, and similarly, hormones, they're totally off-label um, and also not appropriate for premenopausal women. So it's not a hormonal or medication route to go. Thankfully, we actually do have science showing that um, mindfulness meditation works. It works. Um, it needs to be practiced. It's I, always, I equate it to like... You know, it's like when you go to the gym and you have a great workout, you don't go home and suddenly have the fitness and you're going to have it forever. You right. have to keep exercising that muscle. Um, so I often advocate, you know, download a, download a mindfulness app. We run groups in our, in our clinic at VGH. Um, you can go to a meditation center, implement some mindfulness in your life, even if it's 10 minutes a day. Um, again, the science is pretty undisputed that it can directly benefit sexual desire. And then there's other kinds of psychological skills like cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and that's really helpful if you're someone who has a lot of really distorted beliefs when it comes to sex that really need to be corrected with information. So CBT is very, very well supported. And with trauma, I would imagine as well. Tra trauma, most unfortunately, is a, is a big part of my practice too. And, uh, you know, so if you're a woman who has a history of any kind of trauma, even emotional trauma or, or neglect, um, that really needs to be dealt with um, and can be done in concert with improving your sexuality, but really sh should not be ignored. Yeah. And then, of course, there's all the basic life hygiene things like get enough sleep, you right. know, watch what you eat, minimize your alcohol, all of those things that just promote general health. I've been... So <laughs> I bring this out every chance I can get. I've been sober for eight and a half months. Congrats. Thank you so much. Um, I'll attest to that, man. Yeah. Your desire is yeah. through the roof. Oh, she is. She's well and alive. Again, Grandma, I see you. <laughs>
Oh, goodness. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, really quick, where can we find you other than on debunkingdesire.com? Uh, so Twitter, um, my handle is Dr. Lori Brado. That doctors in DR, Lori Brado. Um, our research website is at UBCSHR. You can find us all over. You can also can use hashtag debunkingdesire everywhere. Um, and then our research institute on Twitter is at women's research. And there you can find out definitely about the research on sexual health, but all of the women's health related research that's happening in BC. That's so exciting. That's awesome. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being here. This was so like fascinating for me. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're really grateful that you guys, uh, you guys came on here. So Aww. thank you. Thank you both. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for giving this a platform. Absolutely. So much. Anytime. All right. Okay. okay, guys, we will see you next time. I was, was going to say, say peace, peace out. out. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on Sam's channel, that's how she um, like says goodbye. Yeah. And we both were just about to be like, peace out. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah.